brought up. David has four main purposes in this 34th Psalm. We talked about three of them last week. We're going to talk about the fourth one today. And if you just walk through the psalm, you can see this pretty succinctly, what he's doing. First, he's expressing worship to the Lord. He himself is a worshiper. He says that from the beginning, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be on my mouth. So he views himself as a worshiper, and he is a worshiper. And then secondly, in those, that next uh, little part, uh, three and following, he gives testimony about God. He, he understands truth about God, but he also has an experiential insight to that truth. And he tells the testimony, and it's simply, I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me. He encamped about me. So he shares the testimony, and then he calls other people to join him in praising the Lord. And we talked about that last week where he says, For everyone, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Give him a try. Read his word. Begin praying. Begin moving in faith, and you'll see that God is good and that he provides goodness for us as well. And then today we're going to focus in on the verse 11 and following the latter half of the psalm which is about teaching us how we might fear God. Now, that doesn't sound like something that you want to sit through, but I can tell you the blessings of God are rooted in this notion of, of you and me fearing Him. So let's, let's talk about that some. Most of us don't really think about fearing God as something that we ought to ascribe to, uh, but it is probably most under, misunderstood in the Bible, that phrase among all of them, most people don't understand what it means to fear God, and most people don't understand the significant blessings that come for those who do fear Him. And the whole psalm has been moving in this direction. In fact, if you look back in the psalm, you see verse 7, it says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him. Literally saying that the enemies have surrounded Him, and He cried out to the Lord, and He says this of all of us who fear the Lord, that Jesus pitches his tent right there. He encamps alongside of us in the midst of our hardship, our calamity, and our affliction, and the trials, the troubles, the warring against us. He is side by side with us, and he delivers us out of that. We'll talk more fully about what that means in a moment. And then he says in verse 9, O fear the Lord, you his saints, those who fear him have no lack no, he's not talking about uh, like a prosperity gospel proclaimer would say, oh, see, the Lord wants you to have all the dreams that you have. The Lord wants you to have all the riches that you desire to have. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, when I come to understand the fullness of the presence of God dwelling within, that Jesus is in the proximity of me, he's fighting with me, he's fighting for me, when I recognize the fullness of that, and I look at all that I may want, it pales in comparison to what I already have in Christ. So he lacks no want because Christ is his provider. And then that moves us into the latter part. Let's just read verse 11 and following. David says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? So right out of the gate, we're recognizing here's David who sees himself as a mentor to those around him. And he's calling out to 
those around him as if they're his children saying, come, let me teach you fear the Lord. Let me teach you that. He's endearing them to know this because he says, which one of you doesn't desire to live life? Which one of you doesn't like the idea, love the idea of long days in this life? And which of you doesn't want to live your life well? So he gives us an understanding that those who fear the Lord have those blessings. Life is good. Life is lived well. And there's a proverbial way that it is long lived, that God blesses that. And then verse 13, keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the affliction of righteousness, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Well, there are great truths in this passage, and some of them you probably just kind of zoom in on. Uh, verse 18 is one of those. It's probably the most popular among the entire psalm. The Lord is near the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. What a, what a compassionate verse that is, and certainly we ought to migrate to that. But this past week, I couldn't help but be transfixed on verse 11. I just kept going there. My eyes kept going there. My, the meditation, my mind kept going there, and just debating that, praying that God would give wisdom and insight to that. How is it that he will teach us to fear the Lord? Actually, the uh, preposition is not there. The preposition, too, is not there. I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. That's different than teach you to fear the Lord. That intrigued me. He's going to teach us the fear of the Lord. So he's, he's moving us to that, stating that the fear of the Lord will actually bring life, lived well, goodness of life, longevity of life that there's a rich blessing that comes with those who fear. So we ought to just take a moment and just settle into what is this notion of fear the Lord? What does that mean? Well, there's multiple passages on that. In fact, if you're one that likes to study the Bible, I would encourage you to take a little topical index and just work through fear the Lord. And look at all the places from the Old to the New Testament that it's talked about. Proverbs 28, 14 is one that will probably stand out to you. It says, blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. So in this, the proverb helps us to see what fearing the Lord is not. The opposite of fearing the Lord is having a hardness of heart. So we can move that in the opposite direction and saying fearing the Lord has something to do with a pliable heart, a heart that is receptive to the things of God. The opposite of being hardened a fear of the Lord is a repentant heart, one that is willing to turn in the direction of God rather than hold their own direction in their own way. It's pliable, it's movable, a heart that is conditioned. Isaiah states it this way, 
this is the one to whom I will look. He, will, he is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So in this case, fearing God is linked to being humble or lowly. It's meant, meant to be a link to one who is contrite, meaning there is a sensitivity about this person in response to the Lord in the inner being. This isn't just some outward expression that somebody's giving. This is an inner movement, that inner man, that inner part of you that is contrite, that hears the Lord and wants to hear the Lord hears the word of the Lord and wants to respond to the word of the Lord. So the fear of the Lord is that kind of movement. The words of the Lord through Isaiah sound a lot like the words of Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount. Remember this? Blessed, blessed is the poor in spirit. Blessed is the one who recognizes poverty of spirit. Blessed is the one who mourns over sin. Blessed is the one who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He's talking about a heart that is conditioned rightly before God. Blessed is that person, for they fear the Lord. So you and I should recognize what God is saying here. A healthy fear coincides with the words of Jesus in the Beatitudes. And then Paul encourages us even more in the truth, saying, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we're just building this concept of what it means to fear the Lord. It means to have a sensitive heart, one that is pliable. It means to be contrite. It means to be one to repent easily. It, it means to be one who recognizes the working of God in the person's life. And from that work comes a fear. So fearing God is a heart that is pliable to the Lord, humble, sensitive, knowing that God is working within us and we're eager for him to do his work. So along the way, I've been giving you a definition that's been repeated. I'm gonna repeat it a few more times too because I want it to sink in. Fear the Lord is humble, contrite, repentive, sensitive, responsive to the Lord, his word, his presence powerfully working in us. That is fear of the Lord. It's not something you do. It's what is in you. It's who you are. I have a sensitivity, a fear, a contrite heart. So fear of the Lord comes in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. In fact, I would say you can't come to fear the Lord without first coming to a relationship with the Son of God, Jesus that's when you'll really come to fear the Lord. Now, you might fear him in his holiness. You might fear him in his awesomeness. You might fear him in the judgment to come. But the real essence of fearing the Lord comes in relationship with Jesus Christ. Because you can experience the awesomeness of God and have the true reverent, reverential awe of God and fear God while you are sheltered in Jesus Christ. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. My family and I like very much to go to the beach. Uh, we rise in the morning and we head to the beach and we don't leave the beach until the sun has set. We're not one of those that gets out early and then about 3.30 starts talking about going to meet the crowd for dinner. We could care less about dinner in comparison to being on the beach. We want to be at the beach. We'll eat dinner later. And we enjoy that. Every, after, every now and then in an afternoon, there might be a storm that starts to move across the shoreline you can see it in the distance typically and it's rolling towards us something like this 
And it's an amazing experience, isn't it, when you see that? Now, obviously, you've got to be careful because lightning comes with that, and where there's lightning, people can die. I recognize that. So we're, we're watching, we're anticipating, we're ready to seek shelter if the case is so. Maybe the wind starts kicking up, and you've got to be careful with the wind because somebody has left their umbrella out there, and that umbrella tumbling around could impale you, right? So you're constantly on the look for the storm and the umbrellas that are tumbling across the shoreline. Maybe you're recognizing that that storm and all of its fierceness and awesomeness is drawing close. And so you take shelter inside. Maybe you go in the condo, maybe you go in the house. But from that vantage point, you can watch it. You can see the magnitude of it. You're not bothered by the wind. The lightning is incredible, but you're not fearful that you're going to be struck by lightning because you're inside. The wind, there's no umbrella that's going to tumble and impale you in the house, right? So you're not bothered by that. It's just a moment, an opportunity to have reverence for the storm while you're in shelter watching it. And that makes the storm altogether different. That makes the storm actually enjoyable. That makes the storm something that is exciting to watch. Now, in that way, God says, have a fear of me. I am awesome, I'm powerful, I'm just, I'm holy, I'm wrathful against sin. Have a fear of me, but let it be in the shelter of Christ Jesus. For when you are sheltered in my one and only Son, who will take your sin upon the cross and nail it there and give to you the credit of his righteous way of living, when you're sheltered in him by faith, you can experience the awesomeness of God and draw near to it. It's an amazing thing to fear God and be sheltered in a relationship with Jesus Christ. But Jesus died for us, and he redeemed us. He saved us. He is our refuge and our shelter, and he allows us to be able to enjoy the majesty of God, the holy justice and power of God with fear and trembling, with tenderness of heart, with contrite spirit. We fear him in the shelter that Christ gives us. And in that, we come to know God all the more. We look at the cross, not with a cowering fear, but we look at the cross with reverence and awe and overwhelming respect of God and his justice that he requires. And we see the salvation and the sanctification work of the Holy Spirit in us. So fear removes any notion, fear of the Lord removes any notion of a secular and sacred divide. When we fear the Lord, a pliable, contrite, repentant heart, eager for God to do his work in word and spirit in our lives, then we don't separate and say these decisions are secular and these decisions are sacred. We see it all as sacred in our fear of the Lord. Every decision is from our position of fear of the Lord. So regular decisions, work decisions, family decisions, business decisions, whatever decisions they are, they ought to come from the fear of the Lord. And I would say that the decisions that we make show evidence of or lack thereof our fear of God. So he says, fear him. And again, this notion of fear is humble, contrite, repentant, sensitive, responsive to the word of the Lord in our inner being as he works powerfully in us and through us. Now, David says that when we have fear of God, that healthy fear of God, 
and I think he's talking about relationally with God, ultimately in Jesus Christ, then that is demonstrated. And he begins to tell the demonstration in verse 13. He says, by keeping our tongue from evil and our lips from speaking deceitful things, turning away from what's evil and turning toward what is good and seeking peace and pursuing it. So let's just work through this for a moment. Guarding our tongues against speaking evil and our lips from telling lies. So from a transforming heart, one that God is working in, he has transformed us by saving us and he continues to transform us by the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's his word and his work in us that we receive with a pliable heart. We say, yes, God did that. That's part of healthy fear. From that, we choose not to speak evil because why would we speak evil when Christ has come to rid us of evil? Why would we speak those things that are evil when Christ came to cleanse our heart from that which is evil? So with the fear of God, his work in us, we determine not to speak evil and not to speak lies. Of course, the Lord said this in multiple ways in the scripture, Ephesians 4, 24 and verse 31 through the apostle, he says, we are to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And listen to all this that just gets expelled, just gone from us, letting all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Why? Because we've been transformed in heart. So out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Let the work of the Spirit be evident in the words of our mouth, the expressions of our mouth. Embrace what God is doing, humbly living contritely, and let it be evident in your words. Hey, if you could just back trail a little bit over the last few days, what was the evidence of fearing God in your mouth? What did you talk about? What's the color of your language? Was it evident this week in conversation that you purposefully had with other people that you live with a pliable, contrite heart, knowing and understanding the working of God by His Spirit and Word in you? And was that evident in your mouth? I'm not talking about the things that you said that you shouldn't say. I'm talking about the things that you purposefully do say as you help others come to a discovery of God. Help others to see what God is doing in your life and remind them that your heart is pliable to him and you're inviting them to speak that kind of truth into you and to help you to walk in a humble fear of the Lord. He says also turn away from evil and turn towards good. And this is a rhythm in the scripture constantly. You take things off and you put things on. And in this case, he's saying you take off evil, you turn away from doing evil and you put on doing good Fearing the Lord and having a humble and repentant heart are inseparably linked. You fear the Lord, you have a humble heart, and you have a repentant heart. In fear, we separate ourselves from sin and we press towards what is good. We do that because we recognize sin destroys our communion with God. And we want nothing to do with that because we want everything to do with having communion with God. We want his working in our life. So we dare not let sin rob us of the community that we have with God. That's why with great candor, Paul says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Don't have anything to do with them because you have a fear of God. You have a pliable heart to him. So turning away from sin is not just a rejection of, of sin. It's a rejection of sin and turning to what is righteous. Righteous. 
So he says, let that be in you as you have a real fear of the Lord. Turn away from doing evil and turn towards doing good. Reject the evil of the world. You know, we have a hard time distinguishing what is good and what is evil. Our heart is easily deceived. It's deceptive and it's wicked, the Bible says. So we need God to instruct us about goodness. We need God to help us to understand what is good and what is evil. You say, well, Randy, that doesn't sound very hard. Well, I can tell you what is good and what is evil by definition by many people in the world is moving. It just changes with the generations, doesn't it? I mean, what, what was called evil today or what is called evil today was certainly called evil 20 years ago. But what was called evil 20 years ago is not necessarily called evil today. It's shifting. It's shifting like the wind. We, we find that to be the case constantly. And, and those who do not believe in a creator do not believe that the creator holds his creation in subject to his law. And so they would say, because there is not a creator, there is not one who is holding creation subject to his law and one who is going to hold them accountable to breaking his law or doing his law, rewarding them, because that is not the case. There is no moral absolute. There is no standard by which morality is gauged because there's no creator, there's no sustainer, and there is no judge. And that means that things can just move, that morality can move. It's relevant with the movement of the culture. But my friends, the Bible helps us to understand what is good and what is evil. And so it's wise that we would listen to the counsel of the word of God, for he knows what is good and what is evil. The world struggles with that. In fact, the world is shifting even in its announcement about what things are. What is sexual sin is now proclaimed to be sexual liberty. And what is the murder of the unborn is actually now a pro-choice decision. And what is abominable by God is said to be a chosen lifestyle by the world. It just shifts. So you and I need to get into the counsel of the word of God that we might know what is evil and then stay away from that and move towards what is good, regardless of what the culture is doing around us. And then he says, seek and pursue peace. Those who are without shelter in Jesus Christ do not know peace. And they know a counterfeit of peace, but they don't know peace. And neither did I before coming into relationship with Jesus Christ. And here's what I mean by that. When God created the world, he created it in perfect harmony and rhythm as it was perfect. Mankind was in perfect relationship with God. Harmony, rhythm with God. He was in perfect relationship with himself. He recognized he was made in the image of God. Eve recognized she too was made in the image of God. They were one in the same. They were in harmony with one another, naked and unashamed. And the creation was being ruled over by them, managed well. That was the way God intended it to be. But when sin came into the world, it brought fracture, didn't it? Now all of a sudden, Adam and Eve are hiding from God. They're pointing fingers accusatory towards one another. They don't identify themselves in the fullness of being in the image of God. They, for the first time, feel shame. And all of creation is working against them, even to eat. There's no peace in that. 
which is the reason why we needed the Prince of Peace to come to be our reconciler, to save us from that brokenness, to save us out of all that disharmony that sin brought into the world. And he has done that. Colossians says he has accomplished that so that now we can be in right relationship with God, have peace with God. In fact, the Apostle Paul recognizes that it's so strong that almost every letter that he ever writes to the church, he begins it by saying, peace to you grace and peace to you because he recognizes the peace that is available in Christ he recognizes the new nature that has been given to us the identity of being one who is born from above a new creation in Christ Jesus not identified in the old way of sin he recognizes that we can live in harmony with one another and have peace with one another and that we can be reconcilers in a broken world and so when the scripture says in David Psalm 34 be at peace and pursue peace with other people you can do that with a fearful heart one that's taken shelter in Christ Jesus it's certainly doable so now we have this understanding of fear in the Lord it's humble it's contrite it's repentant it's sensitive it's responsive to the working of the Holy Spirit and the word of God in our life and being not just agreeable to that but pressing towards that that is to fear the Lord the reason why that is so important that we get that we don't misunderstand that it's because there is a host of blessings that follow the person who fears the Lord in fact the rest of the psalm tells us that verse 15 the Lord watches and listens to those who are righteous what a blessing that is verse 17 he hears and delivers us from all of our troubles verse 18 he's near to the broken harvest he saves those who are crushed in spirit 19 and 20 he delivers the afflicted preserves our bodies and then verse 22 he redeems the life of his servants those who take refuge in him are not condemned that's an eternal state not condemned for those who fear the Lord now, God does not promise us in those verses that we are not going to have hardship. God never promises us in that text that we will never experience brokenheartedness, that we will never be afflicted. In fact, God actually says there will be many afflictions. We live in a broken world, and because of that, we suffer. Added to that, we are followers of Jesus Christ, who those who are opposed to him hate him his word and those who follow him and the Lord said we would not be greater than the master as his servants we too would suffer persecution so Psalm 34 although taken by many a prosperity preacher to try to get more money out of folks will say that God is all about the riches and the goodness in your life and these are all the promises he is not saying that you and I will not experience trouble in a fallen world in fact I think he's saying the opposite but I think he's giving us the answer we're not kept from calamity nor affliction, but we are promised God's affection and attention and presence in the midst of them until that day comes when he will deliver us from all of our troubles. And though our bones may be broken today, there is coming a day that there will not be a bone broken in our body. There will not be a blemish of our body. All the rebellious will be condemned, but those who fear the Lord will experience the fullness of God's salvation. That's the promise. That's what he's clinging to here. So if you're like me, you're mystified, intrigued, enthralled. Storms at the beach. Among my favorite are those that just kind of roll on out. And maybe you've had dinner, the sun has long set, and you're watching in the distance 
out in the Gulf of Mexico, an amazing display of power. And from that vantage point, miles away, you can now see the scope and the grandeur of that storm. You can't help but watch the lightning as it moves horizontally across the sky or reaches way up into the 30,000 plus cumulus clouds. And in that, you are just mesmerized. I could watch it for hours. There's coming a day when the most desperate days and seasons of your life, the most stormy times in your life that you thought you wouldn't survive, that you'll gain a different perspective. There's coming a day when you will see the magnitude of it. You'll see from one end to the other. You'll see the height and the depth of it. You'll see the power in it. You'll see all the calamity that's occurring in it, but you'll see it from a whole different perspective. You'll see it as one who has already experienced it. And in the shelter of Christ Jesus, who has now made all things new, you'll see it as the way he demonstrated himself. For David, it was, he came and camped right beside me. He heard my cry. He answered my call. You've got to trust him. He's moving you and me to that day. A day where we'll see things differently. But those who fear the Lord take shelter in Jesus.